Well, if you'll open your Bible to John chapter 2, verses 13 through 25, John 2, 13 to 25, continuing our series through the Gospel of John. If you're just joining us, we're um, obviously just early into the series. I want to speak this morning on the subject of worship that gets way off track. Reading out of the English Standard Version, beginning of verse 13, listen to the word of the Lord. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you'll raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. And they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Well, God, we're thankful as always for your word and that we can open it anytime as your people with the expectation that you have something to say to us in it and that you will, by your spirit, speak a word of truth and life to us. You know every person here Every person tuned in online, you know um, all that's on our heart, that's in our lives, uh, Lord. You, you know the perspectives we bring to this passage this morning. And so we ask that you'll uh, have a word, even for each one of us, to hear and apply one by one. And so would you speak, O oh Lord, your word by your spirit through your servant, to your people, for your glory. All this is yours, Lord. Have your way among us in Christ's name. Amen. And you may be seated. Well, he begins here by mentioning that this uh, event happens in the context of the Passover. There are at least three Passovers mentioned in God's, uh, John's Gospel. And multiple times, he mentions that Jesus went up to Jerusalem. I mention that for uh, a couple of reasons. Number one, if you read the other three Gospels, which we call the Synoptic Gospels, they're written from sort of the same point of view, and that's where the word synoptic comes from. But uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke really write their Gospels um, as a narrative that tells more or less how Jesus moves from Galilee to Jerusalem in his last week of his life, that, that, that the whole story is leading to his death and his resurrection. 
And, um, and so it, it sort of presses toward that final week in Jerusalem. John points out it's not the only time Jesus ever went to Jerusalem. And that is maybe especially worth mentioning this morning because John tells of a cleansing of the temple at the beginning of his gospel. The other three gospel writers mention the cleansing of the temple at the end. Now, if you're a student of the Bible, you um, have noticed that fact, perhaps, and, um, and maybe know of some of the discussions around it. I'm not going to get into a whole lot of that, but it is uh, relevant and, and at least a little helpful uh, to touch. That John tells about the cleansing of the temple at what would appear to be the beginning of Jesus' ministry. The others tell about the cleansing of the temple at the end. And there are some who insist, well, that one of them, at least one of them got it wrong. Because there are always skeptics out there who don't uh, trust the Bible or have any regard for the authority of the Bible and would just dismiss it as being either it never really happened um, at all and it's just sort of a fictitious story or somebody got something wrong. Uh, just throw that one aside. <laughs> don't believe that one at all. Um, others, though, who do take the Bible seriously, some would suggest that John is writing uh, his gospel in not necessarily a strict chronological order and that he places this account earlier on in the gospel for theological reasons rather than chronological ones. And that's certainly a possibility. Uh, but another possibility and r really one that I would uh, embrace is simply the idea that there were two temple cleansings. Uh, one early in Jesus' ministry and one in late. And, and, and it actually... Um, makes plenty of sense. Number one, in terms of the details that are different in John's account of this uh, versus Matthew, Mark, and Luke's. There's a little bit that's very similar, but, um, but some significant details that are different. But it's also totally plausible. If you think about the fact this aroused the indignation of Jesus, right? We've not, we don't see Jesus like this very often, right? I mean, if you, even if you haven't been much of a student of the Bible, you read this passage and you go, what, what, what's going on with Jesus today? He's really upset about something. And if this aroused that kind of indignation in Jesus, whatever underlies that, which is what we'll get to this morning, there's no reason to think that he wouldn't call that out when he saw it before. Uh, and there's also no reason to think that the religious leaders... Would, uh, would change their ways just because Jesus called it out. Have you ever known church people to just change because somebody pointed out an error of their ways? That, that doesn't happen. And so, again, that makes, that makes that's totally plausible in light of what we know about Jesus, what we know about people, religious people in particular. Um, and so I, I think that's, that's what we see here as John tells about an earlier temple cleansing. Uh, at the end of the day, though, that is really not so important um, because the, the real critical question is, why did this make Jesus so indignant? It, all four gospel writers tell this, uh, an account of this sort of thing, and all four writers get at this, this, this aroused something in Jesus that we don't see uh, really expressed to this degree any other place. Why did, Je why did this make Jesus so indignant? Well, verse 16 kind of answers the question 
directly and overtly in the, on the most uh, basic level, it's because they had made God's house a house of trade. The issue is where this activity is taking place and that it is in the house of God. And that, that's, uh, the, at least in the most general way, the issue. That on this most sacred occasion, this most sacred place has been made a marketplace. And Jesus... I mean, we, we, would, we, we, we would maybe describe that as comes unhinged. I mean, he's not falling apart. He's not losing his composure. He didn't apologize later. I'm sorry, guys. I really, you know, I was a little, hadn't eaten yet, you know, and I was just a little, in a little bit in an irritable mood. But, but he is uh, indignant that this most sacred place has become a marketplace. Bleeding, bleating goats and sheep and all the stink that comes with goat and sheep. You know, livestock have a special kind of stink. Right? And pigeons. The house of God. How does worship get that far off track? How does worship get that far off track? Well, I want to suggest that we see here uh, at least four ways that that happens. Number one, worship gets so off track by prioritizing the convenience of the worshipers. By prioritizing the convenience of the worshipers, making, uh, making a, a high priority out of convenience for the people who are coming to worship. Passover was, as I already kind of alluded to, the most significant of the three major feasts for the Jewish people when all Jewish men were required to travel to Jerusalem. They were pilgrimage feasts. They had to offer a sacrifice. It was difficult for them to bring animals. I mean, it, it required some effort, in other words, to, uh, considerable effort to bring animals on a long trip, especially if they were coming from very far off. And so many of them wanted to purchase those when they arrived. And uh, nothing inherently wrong with that um, at all. But in the, in the same way, those who traveled from very far off often came with foreign currency. They needed to exchange their currency for the local currency, whatever was accepted um, for the purposes of paying the temple tax and offerings. So there were trading stations to do those kinds of things. And in an earlier time, those trading booths had been set up well outside the temple complex across the uh, Kidron Valley up the slope of the Mount of Olives. But by the time of Jesus' public ministry, that had been moved into the outer court of the temple. And this was very, very convenient for those who were traveling. Don't have to go out of your way to get a goat or a pigeon. You know, don't have to get up early in the morning. It's just really real convenient. Just show up just early enough to stand in line, you know, in the goat, the goat line or whatever. Very convenient. As far as we can tell, none of the worshipers are upset about this. They actually might be being exploited a little bit, but they don't even mind as far as we can tell. 
They're okay with it. Jesus is the only one who's upset. And by the way, he's the only one who matters. We'll get around to that maybe again in a minute. There's, there's a priority that's been given to making this convenient to the worshipers by bringing that right into the temple court. And I've suggested before that pleasing people is one of the highest aims of churches in America today. I've said in a number of different ways, a number of different times, that American evangelicalism has sort of taken the form of a, a, a provider-consumer relationship. That, that, that churches are providers of spiritual services, if you will, and worshipers are consumers. And we, we bring a lot of the mindset of just consumer activity into the way we plan uh, church and that whole relationship and that kind of thing. Uh, it, it's, it's really quite pervasive. But so much of what we do um, or what we're expected to do is founded on the assumption that we need to figure out what people want and then give them that. So what, what sort of messages do they want and how short do they need to be? You'll notice I never sent out a survey asking you that question. How short would you like my sermons to be? You know, if you don't do more of this or less of that, people aren't going to come. People are going to go somewhere else and that kind of thing. So that's, you, you know, you sort of feel that. Uh, it's sort of self-imposed pressure churches put on themselves, but that's a lot of the way the conversation uh, takes place. And on an individual level, we can find ourselves, too, evaluating churches or certain church activities or whatever on the basis of how convenient are they and how well do they fit into our interests and schedules and so on. And there are all kinds of ways that might be true. Um, certainly right now, it, it could be for some people who spent some time uh, last year uh, at home a lot and doing church online, so to speak, uh, watching services online. Um, decided, hey, I kind of like this online thing. And there are plenty of people uh, continuing to be at home be because they have to be at home for whatever sort of reason. Don't really want to be at home, but for health reasons and uh, other kind of things like that, they're just homebound. And so we are grateful to be able to uh, broadcast our service online for people just like that. Or for people who are traveling and that kind of thing to still be connected with us. We're thankful uh, for the technology that allows us to do that. We'll say good morning to those for whom that's true and uh, glad you're with us. Oh, but there are lots of people who have opted to do that just because it's more convenient. So they say, oh, I'm going to worship on the beach or on the boat or on the golf course. I can worship God just as, you know, it's beautiful out there on the golf course and it just uh, arouses in me this great sense of his handiwork and I can praise him on the golf course and I'm gonna because I got a 9.30 tea time but I'll watch online well I won't watch because you know I'll be playing golf so I'll listen have my earbuds in and I'll listen well one earbud in and I have the other one out so I can hear the other guys that I'm playing with now that's a little bit tongue in cheek but, um, but I expect for some that 
uh, that may rub a little bit of a raw spot because it, it maybe hits close to home, at least by way of analogy, of how we think about all kinds of decisions we make about um, our worship and our uh, interaction with the people of God and our um, uh, coming into the presence of God and when and where we do that, that we make a whole lot of decisions around how convenient are they to us. Prioritizing the convenience of the worshiper is sure to lead you way, well, way off track. Uh, the second way that worship gets so off track is by prioritizing the interests of the institution and its leaders. The institution of the temple in, uh, in the case of the first century in John chapter 2 in the immediate context we're reading the institution of the church in our day. But the Jewish leaders had made available all the animals and the currency that the worshipers would need for their uh, sacrifices and offerings and all for a fee. So you can surely bet it's not only the cost of the goat but a little convenience fee for being able to buy it right there in the temple. Part of the proceeds of those transactions would go into the temple treasury. And when we think about the fact that the Passover, one New Testament scholar said uh, Jerusalem was probably a city of around uh, 40,000 people on Passover in the first century. Um, it could have brought up to six times that many people to the city. So on that week of that feast, you know, you've got 200,000 people potentially people coming into the city who don't live there. That's a lot of people. Um, that's a good opportunity for a fundraiser for the temple. Man, that beats the heck out of pumpkins in October and Christmas trees at Christmas. I mean, you know, I mean, you're talking to, you're big time selling goats and sheep and pigeons right there in the temple to people who have to come to you. going to bolster the budget a little bit every Passover. And if you brought an animal to sacrifice, you know, the priests could judge that it was insufficient in some way, unworthy to be used as a sacrifice, and then turn around and sell you one that did meet the criteria at convenience store prices. Right? It's like going to the zoo and finding out you need to buy an umbrella from the gift shop. That's an expensive umbrella. It's a, it, it, it's, it's a cheap one. It might break before you get back to your car, but you'll pay as if it's a really expensive one, right? Or if you've got to eat lunch there, you're going to buy something in the gift shop. Uh, or imagine, um, you know, anybody who has a car, you know the DMV requires you to have your registration renewed every year. And in order to get your registration renewed, you have to have it inspected. Now imagine if the DMV is the one who does your inspection and they can tell you why it doesn't pass and what repairs you have to have done and then by the way they're going to turn around and do the repairs for you at a price at their price and whatever they charge is what you're going to pay well that's sort of the, the kind of arrangement that's, that's going on here in John chapter 2 you come to the temple, you have to come to the temple. The Bible says all Jewish males must come 
on these three feasts to Jerusalem. You have to come. You have to come there. You have to have an acceptable sacrifice. They can determine if it's acceptable and, and sell you one that is acceptable if they determine it's not. You see, that, that serves the interest of the institution. That sort of is not only convenient to the worshiper, but it serves their interests as well. They've made a huge commercial enterprise out of that. Well, a few things are more reprehensible than spiritual authority figures who manipulate and extort the people that they're supposed to serve. I mean, few things in the whole life of the church, of the people of God, is any more reprehensible than that. And Jesus came and saw that the shepherds who were supposed to be feeding the sheep were fleecing them instead. That's, that's part of what's going on. Taking advantage of this situation for their own interests. This whole sacrificial system of the temple is supposed to point uh, to the need for man to be reconciled to God and ultimately to point to the one Messiah who is going to fulfill all of that system in himself. And he will be a sacrifice once for all in his own body on the cross and pay once for all the penalty for sins. That, that's, that's what all of that points to. But on this occasion, Jewish leaders had really made it in their mind neither about God nor men but about their own interests or again perhaps about sustaining the operations budget of the temple filling the coffers well again I'd say lest we think this is somehow in the distant past and irrelevant to us in all kinds of ways churches want people for what they can get from them rather than what they can give to them and there are, they're not necessarily conscious of this, but there's all kinds of conversation you can hear among church people that have to do with how, we, how can we get people and without, without consciously saying, without even saying it out loud, uh, what's obviously of concern to them is we need people in order to keep our thing going. We need people to staff all the volunteer positions. We need people to give their tithes and offerings, you know, to support the budget and, and so on and so forth. Interested in people for what we can get rather than what we can give to them. Now that has a little bit of a sting in it because you'll find both this issue of convenience of the individual um, and the interest of the institution both, uh, frankly, hit pretty close to home. The church is a community of faith that grows by inviting people into the community and helping them follow Christ. Introducing them to Christ, uh, teaching them to obey him more and more and to help others do the same. That's disciple making. We talked about that even a couple of weeks ago. And if any local church is not going to help people follow Christ, why should God send that church new people? That's a fair question, isn't it? If the church's interest is only in getting people for the sake of what those people do for the institution, why in the world ought God to honor that desire or that pursuit and endeavor? I mean, you hear it in, in, in churches all over the place right now. Of course, we see... Um, 
you know, pretty stark generational divides in a lot of cases because you see that all throughout the culture. Real, very different mindsets among generations and you see that manifest in the church and you'll hear churches all over the place say, we need to get some young people or this place is going to die. The question they almost never ask is why should God be interested to trust you with young people? Uh, I'm not saying you uh, specifically, but any church asking that question. Why should God entrust that church with young people? What are you going to do for them? Are you going to help them meet Jesus, follow him, obey him more and more, and help others do the same? The other question uh, churches seem never to ask is why shouldn't the church die? Why is, the church, why, why is our church or any church uh, worth keeping alive? It, it is for the sake of the mission that God has given to the church, right? And to proclaim the gospel, to lead, again, to lead people to faith in Christ, reconciled to God in relationship with him, and growing in their faith in him. But if and when it, for any church it becomes about getting people for the sake of the institution's own interests and its leadership, uh, it's gone way off track. And they're pursuing um, a, a set of interests that really aren't God's interest. Because they're seeking people for what they can get from them rather than what they can give to them. I've said plenty about that subject uh, I'll move on the third way worship gets way off track is by overemphasizing signs and wonders here or, or misprioritizing perhaps signs and wonders Jesus speaks of this a couple of times where uh, the first the Jews in verses 18 and follow him ask him what sign do you give for doing these things. Like, what, what, what authority do you have to be coming in here doing these kind of things? What sign would authenticate that authority to disrupt this trade the way that you're doing? And then, many among the masses of people, it says, believed in Jesus because of the signs that Jesus performed, verses 23 and 24, and 25, I suppose. This wasn't true only here. It's true in other places, too. We see that people believed Jesus because of the signs. Um, but Jesus wasn't so confident that their belief in him was really uh, authentic. You see, he, it says he did not entrust himself to them because he knew people. A few chapters from now, we'll see, he com it comes back to a similar thing where there are people only following him because of the miracles and he says some hard things that just blow them away and he kind of does it on purpose <laughs> just to drive them away that following him for the sake of the signs is not that they don't have a real saving faith in him well there are unbelievers today who uh, say they they won't believe unless God does some extraordinary miracle I mean you'll hear sometimes atheists or skeptics say that you know, if God's real, then why didn't he come down here right now and do a miracle on command and, you know, blah, blah, blah. That he has to do some kind of extraordinary miracle and then they'll believe. Well, the truth is they, they won't believe for that reason. Uh, but some people would claim 
that, uh, that that's, they, they require that. And there are plenty of believers who um, flit about, sometimes from church to church, chasing signs and manifestations of the Spirit and that kind of thing, um, sort of chasing a wow factor of one sort or another. Seeing where, where they would think God is showing up and flitting about to be a part of it in, uh, in different ways. People like to be wowed. It's just sort of scintillating to be wowed by external you know, manifestations of some kind of way. And, and in, in some way for, for understandable reasons. But very often, those same people who flit about that way uh, will talk as if they're spiritually more enlightened and have a deeper understanding of the truth. But Jesus does not regard uh, people that way. P people who follow the signs, Jesus, you'll notice, doesn't have the same regard that sometimes they have for themselves. He didn't give himself to them because he knew all people. He needed no one to bear witness about man. He himself knew what was in man. Signs confirm the word, but it is the word that is to be believed. It is the good news of the gospel that is to be believed. And the miracles confirm that word, but they by themselves um, are not what we're supposed to follow and not the highest priority in our worship. Number four, and this really uh, could easily be number one, it is probably the most important thing, but worship gets way off track by forgetting the holiness of God, the majesty of God, the greatness of God, the worthiness of God, God had instituted the Passover and had commanded the very observances that they're undertaking. God had instituted that. And when he did, um, in, in Deuteronomy chapter 16, uh, when he's kind of recounting the law and as they get ready to go in and occupy the promised land, um, he's, he makes a few statements here. And I've got a, uh, a slide. If you'll put up this next slide. Jim, with these few references from Deuteronomy chapter 16. Observe the month of Abib and keep the Passover to the Lord your God. And you shall offer the Passover, verse 2 of Deuteronomy 16. You shall offer the Passover sacrifice to the Lord your God. And on the seventh day, there shall be a solemn assembly to the Lord your God. And of all three pilgrimage feasts, he says, three times a year, all your males shall appear before the Lord your God. And there is a whole lot of activity going on in the temple on Passover right here in John chapter 2. And it would seem nobody has remembered the majesty of God in all of that. There are a lot of priorities going on right there in the activity of hundreds of thousands of people and a whole lot of stinky goats and sheep. And there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of concern 
for the holiness of God who sanctified that place for their worship, who called them there on that day to sacrifice uh, those animals they're called to sacrifice and to appear before him. And once again, if we do a little reflection and introspection, we will find out in our own hearts how much and how in how many ways we have made worship about ourselves so much so that we're like we we have a hard time even getting our mind in other categories we 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 read the bible for kind of self-help instruction we uh we look for messages online or in person that are content that are that will help us get through you know, the day or be more successful in our business and so forth. We, uh, we look for styles that suit us, times that are convenient to us, on and on and on and on and on. Making worship about everybody except for God. And he ought to make us tremble We have no fear of God. An exhilarating, thrilling kind of fear that just encounters the immeasurable greatness of his glory. And we've dispensed with it almost altogether. That's how worship gets way off track. And if you want to take away one way to get worship back on track, it is, it is by recovering a sense of awe and reverence for the greatness and majesty and holiness and glory of the one true God. And all of our other interests, our self-interest, our sense of convenience, our schedule, all of those kind of things begin to get subordinated and then begin, uh, begin to get slain altogether because they're of no concern to us if we have great concern for his greatness and glory. And so Jesus comes into that scene and maybe it makes sense then maybe it makes sense to know why the son of God would be so indignant to see that kind of worship that kind of perversion of defilement of a holy place consecrated for the worship of a holy God maybe that makes sense of why that would stir him to such a degree And, of course, what he points to explicitly is that it's all leading to him anyway. And the great irony of this passage is the fact that these Jews who are, um, these Jewish leaders who are uh, no doubt incensed by this action on his part and who question him, what sign do you give? He tells them, destroy this body I'll raise it again in three days. He's speaking of his body, or destroy this temple, rather. He's speaking of his body. Ironically, they will be the ones who send him to his death. 
and three days he will be raised again. And by his resurrection, he will render this whole system of worship irrelevant, essentially. It, that it will have reached its fulfillment in him. And then in not so many decades after that, that temple will be destroyed by the Romans and it has never been erected since then. Because he became the very embodiment, the object of all of the worship of the people of God. All of this leads to him. But we can just as easily in a Christian worship context get way off track in our worship as much as they could in the, in the ancient Jewish world in the first century or all the centuries that have come before or have come since, rather, and before us. And we recover a right worship by recovering a sense of the greatness and glory of the God whom we worship. Let's pray. God, we began this service by acknowledging your greatness and the call to us to come. Let us worship and bow down and kneel before the Lord, our God, our maker. And so we come once again to do just that. God, would you show us places in our own heart, in our own life, where we have made our convenience, our comfort, our preferences, our interests, our greatest priority, and we have lost any sense of yours. Would you show us where that's true about us and lead us to repentance, to correction, and to right worship of you. So Lord, even during our time remaining, would you speak by your spirit in a way that we know brings restoration and reconciliation, not condemnation. We thank you that that's true through Jesus. We pray you'd minister that truth through him to us now. In Christ's name, amen.